Today we have with us Thomas Tulup, one of my close friends in Singapore and a French physicist who specializes in quantum computing. Yes, well, thank you for having me here, uh, MC. Uh, I am indeed uh, finishing my thesis uh, about uh, condensed matter and quantum computing uh, at uh, NUS and the Center for Quantum Technologies. So yeah, um, one of the reasons I invited you to the podcast is to share with us your abundant knowledge of physics, of astronomy, of everything else. But um, I want to start by learning more about who you are and uh, share with my audience your journey through life. So why don't we start by you walk us through how you discovered your love or passion for science and physics, physics and how did that start in France and uh, all the way to Singapore? Yeah, well, that's a, that's a good question. It, uh, to be honest, it, uh, it's, it, it started, I would say, quite early. It almost always been there. I, I would think I was always a bit of a, of a nerd in the sense that uh, I was interested in uh, just understanding, figuring out how things work. Uh, even, I don't know, when I was like uh, six or seven years old, I was already, uh, I was already like cutting paper, little paper circles to represent the planet and uh, gluing them to my, to my ceiling to, to build a mini solar system in my room. And I guess it, it just like always kind of fascinated me. And um, it seemed quite logical, like through my, my education, to just pursue science because it's, um, it's, a, it's a choice of career that is that not too many people frown upon. It's not like when you say, oh, I want to be a musician. Some people will have objections. Are you sure you can make a living out of this? If you say, I want to be like a mathematician or an engineer, like people are usually uh, going to be like, oh, what, what a bright kid. That's a, that's a very good idea for your future. So I was, I was quite always encouraged by everyone around me to just like pursue this, this mathematical career. At first, at first, I wanted to be a mathematician because... Mathemat mathematics were like my my favorite subject at first because it was the one I was the best at so it was easy to get good grades and please my parents but um, but then I started to to enjoy it for the sake of it just you know at first I, a bit like a brain teaser in a way it's like I just enjoy getting into like the 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 thick of things to to understand like this uh, to consider like these complex systems, these complex problems, where you have to uh, to to really uh, to really like take some time for yourself and just trying to like slowly figure out what's going on. I I guess yeah, I just like the the process of like slowly grinding through the details of uh, of anything, and um, and yeah, at first I wanted to I wanted to be a mathematician for a very long time because it was the more the more pure the more abstract subject where it was literally just you know an intellectual journey but um, yeah it all changed when i uh, when i got into uh, into uh, into ecole polytechnique uh, where i got my first uh, my first lecture about quantum physics and um, it was wow! It was it was a, it was a revelation in a way because it was a very a very complex and uh, mathematical subject. So it was extremely satisfying just from a from a day to day uh, day to day perspective 
because the, 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 the math were hard, where they were, they were fascinating. And at the same time, um, it was math with a purpose, in a, in a way that it, it was complicated math that was used to explain some of the, some of the most mind-blowing facts about nature, about the universe that I've ever heard of in my life. So after, after the, the first few lectures, I was absolutely hooked. I was like, yeah, of course, like this, this, this is the, the kind of stuff I want to do later. Mm. I want to, I want to just like keep doing that stuff because it's, it's all the, all the good flavor of math of like actually using your brain to like its full extent to really like crush hard problems. And mm. at the same time, it's actually di discovering things about the, 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 the real nature of things and about the, the world that, that surrounds us. Mm. I think, I think we can all look back to our, uh, student days and, and point to the specific classes that really uh, give us a spark to uh, let us to discover what we are passionate about. Um, but I think for most people, it just stops there. They just finish the class, get a good grade, then enjoy the intellectual fun, but then still look for something more practical in terms of pursuing an actual career in the job market. So what led you to continue the education through a, a master degree than a, than a PhD degree. And, and I think a lot of it has to do with the present state of academia now where um, the, the marginal um, the, or the incremental research benefit has shrunk a lot compared to the early days. So, so what, what do you think is the point of um, doing something you're doing now in, in, in the primary science field? Uh, so deeply involved at the frontier of uh, research. Mm, yeah, so I I understand where you're going with that. In the, yeah, I mean, in a way, at first it was kind of a selfish choice. When I when I first went into this academic journey, I was not really thinking about um, about you know what I do, what are the job markets prospect. Is my research really going to help? Uh, at first, it was mostly out of inter intellectual curiosity. I wanted to see just how far I could go. So for me, it was pretty logical. I, I, I wanted to see how far are we in physics? Like, mm. wh what, what is the state of the art? And uh, so what in the end, like, what's the extent of our knowledge currently? And f for this, there was not, not no other choice than uh, than going all, all the way through a PhD, because that's that's at the that's at this point that you actually get to the to the border of uh, actual uh, actual physics, and um, that that you finally take your first steps into the unknown, and uh, and then there is indeed this uh, realization that uh, you're not going to do the same stuff as uh, Newton or Einstein or Hawkins. You're, you're not going to revolutionize uh, science or physics in general because um, like this kind of discoveries, there are one in a, one in a million. Like no, very, very few people can like find nowadays that kind of like groundbreaking stuff that is going to completely change the, the way we look at one, one field of science. Um, and instead, you find yourself looking at like some much smaller projects, and um, with sometimes very narrow fields of application. Um, but I guess you just you, you when when you look around yourself, you you see that everyone is doing that basically. Like 
uh, I've never, uh, I, I mean, I've, I've met a few people that have made significant contribution, but 98% of the, of the people I work with, they are doing the same, the same type of stuff as me. They're doing little progress step by step by step like in a, in one very specific field and um, you can think of it a bit like a, like you know like a fractal or like one of these like very complex geometric structure like before we had like a circle of science and we, we would expand it bam so suddenly we would like increase the diameter of our knowledge significantly and now it's it feels like everyone is like at one point of this little circle and it's just like digging a little bit more into the unknown and it's not anymore a perfect circle but everyone is like digging a bit its own way and slowly but steadily the the overall body of knowledge that we all possess still increases so i guess there is still satisfaction to be found in that yeah um i think that's that's a great answer it also relates to your um your reason of taking this career as well as to expand the knowledge the collective knowledge of uh, of human in in regard to the world we are occupying in we found ourselves occupying in yeah that's like that's uh yeah that's kind of like the kind of like the noble endeavor in a way that you that uh, I, I try to fix myself because at some point you have to you have to ask yourself the question okay what am i what am i going to do with my life i need to put food on the table at some point and um i was you know when you when you're considering job prospects I might as well do something that I find satisfaction in doing so, and uh, I believe that this choice of career for me it uh, it has like the the double benefit of both providing providing me with whatever I need to actually live, and also giving me a somewhat sense of a greater purpose. I still feel like I'm I'm contributing in a way. Many people have like a very, very satisfying job when they can directly feel that they are contributing, right? That, that's not exclusive to research. Like, I'm sure that uh, when you're a nurse or something like that, you can very tangibly feel the, feel the, the benefits that you're providing for society in a way. And uh, maybe that's like this idea of a greater purpose. It, it can uh, probably help you go through like the, the a lot more difficult aspects of the job. Yeah, I, th I think... I I understand where you're coming from, but as the interview host, I I have the duty to be the devil's advocate or uh, be the hard questionnaire uh, to push you a bit bit further. So um, my understanding of the, of the current state of academia is you you work through your grind, and a lot of it, whether you your research leads to any result, depends on luck. And even for the ones who who do, very few actually gets. Rec rec recognition in the in his or her field so the reality is you work very hard for five years but then you publish a paper that's only read a few times uh, by uh, very few people once uh once and then probably throw it out after that so how do you reconcile that with your own subjective value system uh, value of the work you're putting in I mean, so it may be something very meaningful to you, but objectively, not many people might care about what you're doing. Yeah, but it, it doesn't mean that the fact that many people care or not um, is not going to change the fact that it can make a significant contribution to the world. In a sense, uh, 
I don't know when uh, when when quantum mechanics was born uh, in uh, in the 20th century. Uh, not many people understood what was going on, and uh, and um, and I'm sure like a lot of them tried to do like some unsuccessful try to figure out some unsuccessful ideas uh, but still even if it was uh, i don't know 50 people in the world that were a bit uh, pushing in the, into this di this direction you the the consequences uh, now are, are unimaginable everything uh, every, every mm. almost every field of physics now uh, and uh, uh, uses quantum mechanics now even the even your phone like the mm. transistors in your phone they're small enough for quantum mechanical effects to be to be felt um, what I'm trying to 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 say here is that yes uh, a lot of the academic contribution that we're going to to get nowadays might be garbage I mean that, that's a that's a very rough word but it's true that a lot a lot of the papers that are published nowadays they they, they probably won't have a significant impact um, but that that might be and I'm saying this by having a significant impact by themselves um, because together with all these little papers they, they still form a body of knowledge that uh, that together will probably contribute to actually make a breakthrough in a field um, it's like for these 50 before like we have these 50 not meaningless but this 50 uh this 50 very narrow paper that uh that 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 try to like tackle uh, a subject like uh, from different angles and finally some some guy who has read this all all these 50 papers is going to be able to put all that stuff together to finally make some make a significant breakthrough Mm, mm. I, I think what we're getting at here is um, it's basically how the knowledge progress um, over time and how knowledge generation works, how this uh, knowledge production industry, if, if I may, how it works. And it's a lot of time it's not immediately apparent um, how an individual piece of uh, output What's the value of that? But it's it's over time, it's a collective um, unit of of contributors that come together, and and it might not be realized in the immediate term, but ten years, fifty years, a decade, a century later, then yeah. then you come about. If if you have to describe the this the structure and the process of this knowledge industry, it's like in a way like. <clears throat> we are walking ants in a way. Yeah. Like everyone is is bringing a little crumb of no, of knowledge to the hive, or I don't know how it's called for the the hands in English. Yeah. But but yeah, everyone is bringing like his little contribution, and um, and someone out there will figure out how to how to make use of all that stuff. And uh, yes, we don't have like um, s we don't have researchers that are as popular in like pop culture as Einstein, for example. Yeah. But it doesn't mean we don't have like good researchers nowadays. And it doesn't mean we don't have significant breakthroughs that are making, that are that have been ma made regularly. Um, you know, we 
we still get a Nobel Prize every year, and uh, you know they're not they're not they're not given out of pity. Uh, every every year we get like a Nobel Prize in physics among many many candidates, and it's for people that have actually demonstrated showed some significant progress in physics. Like, so why do you think then the the physicists today that are making just as big of a contribution as Einstein and Newton? like back in the days they're they're not getting the same level of recognition in the pop culture or uh even within uh university um uh it's society today yeah it's it's more of a pop culture thing in a way like for example there are it's it's very funny like but it's just i guess it's actually not about the quality of the of the researcher but it's just about the, the the story that you can that you can give to them in a way it's like i don't want to i think einstein is a incredible is an incredible researcher and he made like uh, one of the yeah top 5 top 3 easily like contribution uh, to physics but um, there there were even in his time there were many 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 researchers many physicists that made just as big uh, contributions to, to the field and they are nearly they are not not the the way they are talked about it's not not even close in terms of popularity like I don't know I'm thinking about like Poli I'm thinking about like Dirac all all these kind of all these guys they were genius the same the same as Einstein but for Einstein I don't know I don't know particular there there might be like a few explanations why he became like so prominent in pop culture maybe it was just his personality his story and it's a bit the same with Stephen Hawking, to be honest. For example, if uh, if Stephen Hawking wasn't disabled, if he wasn't suffering for, for from his condition, I don't think he would have got the exact same the, the same recognition in pop culture. In a way, there are many many people that are doing the same kind of very complicated math of like looking about black holes or like making consumption to like string theories, and they are all extremely ex they're, they're all making like very 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 good work but the what distinguished Stephen Hawking from the rest is it is that he managed to make the, the same extraordinary contribution while battling with like a, ter a terrible disease his, uh, his whole life and um, I mean this is the kind of hero stories that uh, you want uh, you want to see uh, you, you, you want to see like in, in the media it's a it's an uphill battle and uh, it's like the triumph of, of a brain over matter or of whatever right so that's yeah that it kind of became like the the in a way like the archetypal uh, you know the archetypal cerebral uh, pers personage yeah mm. so personally if you have the choice would you choose to be born in an earlier time in the world to be a physicist when there was more unknown than less known than today, I think I'm very fine where I'm at because. Uh, so you'd rather be standing on the shoulders of giants with yeah. what you're equipped with. Yeah, yeah, everyone was standing on the shoulders of giants in a way, except maybe the the very first Greek uh, Greek philosophers. But Einstein, he was standing on the on the shoulders of Newton, for example. He was he he managed to yeah he, in a way. He, he proved Newton wrong, not really. He, he added like correction to the work on uh, gravity that uh, Newton has had already been, already done uh, centuries before him. And uh, just to 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 come back on what you said about the unknown, right? Uh, there is still so much unknown 
uh, these days because it's it's a bit you 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 said that as if um, you know like at in the time of Einstein the, the universe was unknown we had no idea what was going on and everything was up for us to discover and uh, yes many many discoveries have been made and uh, it's been it's been crazy this pa this past century but we still we still don't know shit you will bleep the shit if you want but uh yeah it's like we still know nothing about what's going on there is still so much stuff to to discover and of course it's it's not very well known in uh by by the layman the these years because if you don't know what's to be found how can you excite be excited about it it's it's our job i'm sure like um when people were trying to figure out uh you know the black body radiation or stuff like that at the time The, the common man at the time had no idea what was going on and was not interested one bit. And for them, physics was pretty much figured out already, right? Because the, the layman, he only knows about what, what, what we know right now. And um, all the little details, like uh, all the little details, the little black dots that we have, like in our theories and stuff like that, that's usually where, where you can expect uh, the, the, next, uh, the next big thing to come out. Do you think that the science and physics has progressed to a stage where the incremental knowledge production is becoming more and more difficult than before. Whereas I mean, you, you, in our prior conversations, you made a good analogy to, um, to, you know, to the back in the days when we didn't have satellites, how you don't know the full spectrum of the earth and you might chance upon a new continent just by sailing away on a random day to a direction. Whereas today it's much harder to discover something that's not already there. Do you feel like the work you're doing now is a lot more challenging than back in the days, mm. let's say a hundred years ago, or with more tools at hand, with more computing technologies, collaboration, uh, interdisciplinary, um, industry this whole industry is working more efficiently now for you is it more difficult or easier <clears throat> i don't want to complain but I, I i would tend to think that yeah in some aspect it's a bit more difficult uh because uh the 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 field of physics keeps increasing right and in a way it's like all the stuff that is easy to find has already been found out in a way um it's like The, the, the complexity of physics is, is growing faster than our intellectual capabilities, mm. in a way. It's like, I don't think, I think people one century ago, they were just as clever, just as smart, just as ingenious as us right now. I don't think like the, the you, you know, like the just mankind can significantly evolve in like intellectual capabilities over 100 years. So we're probably, Uh, we probably are given the, the same amount of, uh, of reasoning capabilities our predecessors, except that right now, the, the, the complexity of physics keep, keeps adding up in a way. And that's why research becomes right now so much more fragmented um, because 400 years ago, 300 years ago, it was still possible to have a state-of-the-art understanding of mathematics, of physics, of biology, all in the same place, all in the same brain. We had like uh, some many, many scientists like uh, Descartes that had time to do physics, mathematics, philosophy, all the same. And they were pioneers in all these fields. And um, 
I don't think that Descartes was more of a genius than Einstein, for example, but it's just that pro that progress had not been made before. And um, now it's, it's just getting harder and harder to, to find uh, places where we actually have the, the capabilities to make a better contribution. Of course, technology improves. So in terms of experiment, like we have more and more experimental capabilities. But um, yeah, I just in terms of the state of knowledge, the, the issue is that we, we are getting more and more specialized in a way it's hard right now to have a, 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 almost impossible to have a, a perfect understanding of uh, everything that's going on in physics right now everyone has to specialize at some point because no one has uh, has the has the brain necessary to to take all the entirety of astrophysics plus the entirety of uh, condensed matter plus the entirety of uh, i don't know string theory you cannot no, no no one knows all that stuff at once so to tie the last two questions together, you're saying now knowledge production is more difficult, but you still rather living in today than before. So you're seems like you're up for the challenge and uh, you would rather um, live through the grind than, yeah, yeah, you know, than the you easy know. life back yeah, and not saying Einstein had a no, easy yeah, life. No, of, of, of course not. Like, because he still, I mean, that, and that's why he made like such great contribution because he used like all his, uh, all his intellect to, to make like all the, all these progresses. Yeah. But yeah, in a way it's, yes, I'm not afraid of the challenge. I'm, I'm seeking a challenge. That's why, uh, that's why I'm, I'm doing physics because I want to grind my gears yeah. is, uh, I want to, to, to be tackled, to be tackling these, uh, these complex systems. That's that's the whole interest of it. Like, yeah. if it's just to do like uh, simple additions or whatever, uh, I don't know. Like, I could, I could find many other jobs where I can just just do like simple math in a way. The so yeah, I think that that's a great uh, segue to our next question. Um, just more fundamentally to you, what drives you? What motivates you? What gets you up every morning to mm. do what you do? Given that you said you're seeking the challenge. So where where does the motivation come from? Perhaps, perhaps it's, my guess is who are the physicists that you look up to? Perhaps they might be a role hmm. model for you. Um, so yeah, for for this this role model question, um, I mean there are many many physicists whose work I admire, right? Like uh, I don't know, I'm I'm thinking of uh, Richard Feynman. For example, who's made uh, whose capability to to turn complex problems into simpler ones uh, is something that I absolutely admire um, because I feel like yeah that's a, that's that's a skill that I I thrive to to develop in a way um, and uh, yeah he made like uh, f just for his life story he has um, he has very very interesting life stories with like a lot a lot of stuff going on during like the the research uh, you know for the atomic bomb or later the cold war so yeah he, his his life story is pretty cool he made like some very interesting contribution to i mean <laughs> and that's saying it lightly right he made like some tremendous contributions to to the the field of uh, quantum uh, quantum mechanics quantum physics in general and um, yeah, so of course I admire his research, I admire his, his methodology, and he has a cool life story full of anecdotes to to add to that. But um, I'm I'm a bit um, I'm a bit wary of uh, you know idolizing 
uh, anyone, any, any researcher. So I, I wouldn't take like a full person as my, uh, as my role model, right? It, because like the, this uh, Richard Feynman guy, like if you look it up, there are many, 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 many things that are going to like put stains on the, on the whole picture because like he, I think his uh, attitude in life with women in general was actually quite, uh, quite dubious. Um, and uh, many many people have. If if you look if you look up into the the light of if you if you scrutinize the life of every every single public figure like celebrities and physicists are not exempt, you will find you will find some dirt. Somewhere. Yeah, that's that. Generally, I agree as well as uh, I think our society tend to idolize people too much. But um, but we every person has different dimensions. You know, an, an actor. He could be a great actor, but off the stage, he, he might have um, personality defects. So even politicians, every every human being has both the um, the the flawed side and and also the, the the aspect of them that should be celebrated. So I think that's a fine point. Um, so that apart, what drives you? You think it, where does that come from? Is it just the innate curiosity? Or do you ever see that runs out someday? It's a it's a combination of both. I think you need two things to be able to like keep up in that in in that kind of life. Uh, it's you you need like a greater purpose, something when you're like actually like stopping uh, ask, asking yourself the big questions. You know, like what am I doing with my life? Am I content with what's happening right now? And um, this is a bit like the intellectual curiosity. It's. Uh, I'm very fine with my purpose on earth being to, you know, to provide, to increase the body of knowledge of humanity because it's a journey that I personally enjoy. It's something that motivates me. I want to understand what's going on in a way. And, uh, and the thing is, this, this larger purpose, it's, it's not the thing that can, it, for me at least, it might not be enough to keep yourself going on on a day-to-day basis because sometimes you just like you know you, you get caught up in the grind and you have like so much stuff to do everywhere and um, you don't have time to think about I'm contributing to science this is all gonna be great so that's why you also need the second component that is you need to enjoy what enjoy what you are doing on a, on a daily basis just like the the little details the the, the groundwork the footwork and um, that stuff it's also something I enjoy because as I said uh, it's like some people they do sudoku to to distract themselves as a hobby right not my thing but for example actually solving these like complex equations and uh, considering this complex problem and just like blocking on them for five days straight and until like what night at 3am you have the illumination and you you spend like uh, three hours until uh, like you, you see the sun rising and you, you you're barely done like writing the solution you just figured out um this is, for me this is a very high kind of uh, high to to ride and uh, this so i enjoy doing this also um, in some aspects of physics and I think that's kind of what, what uh, determined my career choice uh, more specifically the, the field I, I chose to I, I chose to, to go into um, because it just why why why, uh, why quantum computing because the math is the coolest form to be honest I, I, mm. I find other fields of physics equally fascinating I have I, I think hearing about uh, astrophysics is 
it's a, it's an incredible subject, one of the most like uh, pictorially cool that you can you can think of. And I did some astrophysics at some point, but it just the math wasn't as cool. The day to day was not as exciting for me as uh, as quantum computing. So I switched, even though uh, I have uh, I have boundless love for astrophysics. But it just mm. I, it's not something that I can see myself do on a daily basis. Mm. That's that's very interesting how you uh, how you formalized it like it, almost as a theory of how to find your passions you have two two points one is you got to see it fit within your greater purpose but also second part is on the day-to-day -day basis that the work has to be enjoyable and how you make the distinction between the astrophysics and also quantum computing the latter is mm. obviously more interesting because of the math and the the day-to-day -day. Yeah. so and for me right i'm yeah. sure many people they find the math of astrophysics the best and uh, that's maybe why they do that yeah so yeah um i think overall so far we had a good grasp of your background and uh your general views on academia and your career choice so and now i want to make a switch to a, something more topical more subject area specific which is your let's say your your side passion outside of quantum computing side geek. Yeah. your side geek and which i also think is a very fitting uh topic for the first episode of the podcast which is the beginning of of the universe if i may put it that way mm. right um so please thomas like educate us on how we got <laughs> to here where we are today two men sitting in a podcast studio yeah, that's a big, big question, right? <laughs> big question, not solved. But um, yeah, I think I think one one yeah one cool story I can like tell you about to 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 take you a bit through this process is um, is about like the the it's a very very poetic phrase from like uh, Carl Sagan I think that uh, that said that uh, basically. Uh, we are all uh, stardust uh, contemplating the stars and uh, you know wondering what they are in a way we're all stardust contemplating the stars yeah and this is actually it's not just uh, you know it's just we're not just like stardust to be it's not a saying to be cool and poetic right we are actually factually stardust factually accurate yeah and uh, it, it's uh, it, it's one of the i know it's one of the most like mind-blowing discoveries that i had in my uh, in my astrophysics uh, journey right it's it's basically it's it's tied to like the the creation of the universe right of like everything you see around you because um i'm not i'm not going to go through like the actual details of like you know the very first seconds of the big bang because this can it's like five hours of uh, of lectures just for the first one second of what's happening right but um Basically, I can I will just summarize that stuff in for reason unknown something happened and uh, the the universe that was or, that was originally a singularity started to like suddenly ex expand um, started to suddenly su yeah suddenly like came to life to expand in a way um, by creating an, um, and basically all the energy that was contained in the singularity took form to form uh, what we what we know uh, nowadays as uh, you know the very first elements basically at first you had only energy 
and then you had like the the very first subatomic particles like quarks and then you had like stuff that that stuff finally managed to like recombine into uh, some protons and protons and neutrons and electrons that are like the the building block of the elements the atoms and um, and and then these protons and electrons they they they, they fused together in a way i mean to 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 form like the the very the the simplest element that you can find in the in the universe that is hydrogen and that uh, still to this day uh, probably represent i think it's like 75% of the universe is made of uh, hydrogen of the known universe and um, and yeah and we and we had like 25% of helium and uh, basically i'm going to start the story here for 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 the for the purpose of the stars um Because yeah, that's what happened after the Big Bang. That we we had like this this very this this, this universe that is basically just a, a very big cloud of very very diffuse gas in a way with uh, mostly hydrogen, a bit of helium. Now, how long ago was that from? Uh, today? So th yeah, so basically the the Big Bang happened uh, 13.8 billion years uh, before before now. So Big Bang is the beginning of everything. Uh, it's yeah. it's the beginning of uh, space time as we as we know it. Okay, so after way. after the Big Bang, we have the dimensions we we have today. Is the space yeah. time? Yeah, kind of. You can you can think of it as that. In a, in a way, there's like uh, you might not. Maybe you know. Maybe you don't. That like the the universe is is expanding still to this day, and it's basically the the thirteen point eight billion years that we have. It's very, how did we figure this out? It's very simple. It just we we measured like the speed right now at which the universe is expanding, and we just went back in time. We just ran the equation the other way around to see like the evolution of the of the expansion of the universe, but the other but um, going back in time, and so of course so that means you know like the compression. And uh, if if you just follow the the mathematical curve, you come to a point where uh, 13.8 billion years before in time, uh, the overall like metric, the overall size of the universe was basically zero. And uh, of course, uh, the thing is, um, this is at some point, there is still a lot of assumptions, a lot of unknown. We are pretty sure of what went on after the first nanosecond. We are pretty sure like uh, one nanosecond after the, the Big Bang, we have pretty good models that uh, can probably predict more or less what happened uh, at that point. But the first nanosecond, we have no idea. Yeah. Because the, all, the, all the laws of like quantum mechanics, uh, general relativity, as we know it, uh, they cease to function in a universe that is uh, the size of a tennis ball or, or whatever. Yeah. I, I think that goes back to a fundamental paradox or problem in philosophies, which is how do you get something from nothing? Is that the, the first, first, um, first question of, uh, of everything? Mm. So, yeah. 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 And it's, uh, of course, it's like one question that I would be so happy to know the, the answer to, right? It's like, why is there, is there yeah. something in, and, um, It's something right now. It's outside of the. It's outside of uh, our capabilities, right? Yeah. To understand what's going on into the one nanosecond, 
and uh, we can only like speculate of uh, what we what we are going to find if we ever find something because let's imagine that we find a way to uh, to figure out a bit like how this stuff works at uh, this, this scale by like um, some significant breakthrough and what doesn't tell us that okay we're gonna push the thing back no it's not um, no it's not one nanosecond but no we know everything until one billionth of a nanosecond and then after that we still know nothing so yeah, it's how the idea of the the limit where it never approaches zero but yeah. are we, are we, we ever go going to infinitely figure close to zero but it's just how did it start from zero yeah. to something bigger than zero that's yeah. the part we're missing West but but today we're focusing on the latter part yeah correct that's that's more interesting thing and more um, yeah so let's do knowable digress. things to talk about so we can go back to the formation of uh elements on yeah. the correct yeah let's go back the to hydrogen the, the cloud of gas right yeah so basically after all this stuff happened uh, you had like the universe that was made basically of diffuse cloud of hydrogen and a bit of helium and um, basically this gas now that it's standing there it's only um, it can it, it's only feeling uh, one in one of the major interaction that is the one everyone knows gravity and uh, gravity is just the fact that two bodies with uh, with a mass they attract each other in a way so of course if you're a particle floating in space the only other thing that is out there attracting you is the other particles so naturally very slowly because these atoms they are super super light so the interaction is is very very weak so it's gonna take hundreds of thousands of years for the for the cloud to actually become a bit more dense um but there was nothing in the universe, so it had time, right? Nothing else was happening, anyways. So this, so this gas, it's 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 very very slowly started to like concentrate over itself, and um, basically there was there was really nothing stopping it, right? It was it was just gravity. So you can picture that this kind of glass they get more and more dense, more and more dense until more or less because of like the yeah the natural symmetry of gravity that they, they usually took the form of like. More, more or less spheric forms, and um, and these clouds of gas they they start to like basically collapse on each other, and um, what happens is that when you when you compress a gas, it actually heats up. It's thermodynamics. It's a basic basic thermodynamics. It's like when you pump a basketball. If you if you go a, a bit too strong, you notice that the the thing the, the tube that you're holding is actually heating up. And simply because compressing gas heats up, the heats it up. So basically, we we have this cloud of gas that gets like more and more dense, and uh, so the so the, the gas that is at the center of the cloud is 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 getting like much more compressed than uh, the one that you get on the on the in the periphery of it, and at some so the, the temperature is going to rise. And what's happen, what happens at some point when the... Because nothing is stopping gravity until at some point the temperature and the pressure inside the, inside the core of what's going to be the star uh, becomes so high that basically uh, these protons, these protons, electrons, these hydrogen atoms, um, they are pushed against each other so hard that they can like basically um, break... All the all the potential barriers, all the all the natural repulsive uh, laws of nature that you can get between these two atoms, to actually 
have their have their uh, their nucleus fusion in a way like this is literally what's called uh, thermonuclear fusion this is the process that uh, physicists nowadays are trying to mimic to get a potentially uh, infin nearly infinite uh, source of energy maybe the most efficient that uh, that we could have and um, and yeah and basically that's how a star is born it's just you compress gas really 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 hard until Uh, the the protons that are inside its core have no choice but to fusion into uh, heavier elements, and so um, I would say most of the stars that we observe in the galaxy these days, the sun included, uh, are actually um, thermonuclear reactors uh, floating in space. In a way, it's like we have this cloud of gas, and inside of it, only in the core when the pressure and the temperature is enormous. Uh, you constantly get uh, this uh, this hydrogen that are get this hydrogen that are getting like fusioned into uh, through a complete through a complicated process that are getting fusioned into uh, helium, and um, this what's the in, what and what happens when you do this uh, thermonuclear fusion is that uh, you release an enormous amount of energy in a way and through the through radiation. Basically, this is the light that we get from the sun. Basically, all this UV light and stuff like that, and um, and uh, so and so, uh, these radiations are, are so important that uh, they actually manage to counteract the effect of gravity that wants the that wants to make the cloud of gas collapse on itself, and that's how you get basically this stability. Uh, that's how you that's how you get like the the star having like a more or less definite shape into uh, into uh, into space in a way and um, so at the beginning there were just two clouds of dust uh, of two clouds of gas yeah and one this, they fused together and this the nuclear reaction happened yeah and then it was the force was so strong that it counteracted the gravity Yeah. So it was expanding. It was going the other way. Yeah. Basically, it's like it's finding the balance, right? It's as if like it's like yeah, there is just one one strength gravity that want to like push everything in, and there is an opposite force coming from the nuclear reaction that wants to push everything out, and uh, basically it turns out that you get this right balance, and that's what's gonna fix the the, the right, shape of the, a, the shape of the of star. star, like yeah. Earth. For example, that's why Earth is is this round globe that uh, we're seeing I mean, now. Earth is not a star, right? It's more. You mean the Sun, probably, right? The Sun, okay. The Sun, yeah, okay. Because no, no, uh, no thermonuclear fusion going on uh, inside the Earth. Right? Okay, so so, <laughs> I mean, I am a layman, complete layman. Yeah, so yeah. there we go. Um, that clarified. So that's the birth of a star like yeah. the Sun. Yeah, correct. How how come there are multiple of them? So um, I mean, it, and so, did they all, were they all created at once? Uh, so the the creation of stars, uh, no, they, they were not all created at once. There was probably a first star ever created in the universe. I don't know where, but uh, honestly, why why we got like this dispersion of stars? It's all done to chance. It's like this uh, basically the repartition of the gas into the universe at very first. It was not perfectly homogeneous. Why? We don't know. But that's this repartition of gas in the that that's 
everything came from that. It, it's, it was not perfectly regular, right? There were still, there were some points where there was a bit more gas. So the gas around it would naturally go to like these heavier concentration points because they are heavier. And so slowly but steadily, you would get like clusters of like gas that would like pop out a bit, like the less dense region, they would become even less dense because the, the gas would like migrate toward the already more dense region because there was a bit of imbalance at the very beginning. We don't know why. Don't ask me why. I don't know. So that's why we had multiple stars yeah, basically. because this process happened at different places that created yeah. them. And actually it's like, that's why we have like different galaxies in a way, right? Because before, because, you know, stars that exist in a galaxy and they are like billions, at least billions of galaxies. I think it's a, yeah, so what is a galaxy then? A galaxy, it's basically a large group of stars in a way. It's a, it's a structure. Um, it's at first, the, all these clouds, basically, they, 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 they just dispatched themselves into like smaller clouds. And these smaller clouds, they became galaxies at first because each smaller cloud, uh, you get like some... Uh, you, you, each, each smaller cloud, they become into even like smaller clouds, basically. And uh, in, inside, you get like, and inside the, the star creation process happens. It's, yeah, it's basically, it's like yeah, a galaxy. It's, it's just a very large concentration around same, like uh, hundreds of billions of stars in a galaxy. Okay. Can... So at the beginning, there were stars. There are multiple stars, multiple galaxies. Yeah, basically multiple galaxies, each containing multiple stars. And by multiple, I mean a lot. Okay, so where where do we go from there then? Are you going to zoom in to talk about the sun or For example, the galaxy I could, we're in? Let's, I, could, I, could, I could do this, yeah, because let's let's talk about the sun for sure. a while and then I will tell you about this whole stardust yeah. thing. Because um, basically, this is, right now, that's where we're at. This whole like uh, thermonuclear uh, reactor uh, in space, that's the sun. Basically, that, the, that's what the sun is doing that's what it that's what it has been doing for 4.5 uh, billion years that's the, uh, the that's the age of the sun in a way and um basically uh this is not going to last forever because uh it's a very big cloud of hydrogen but there is a finite uh, there is a finite reserve of hydrogen, right? Because the thermonuclear reaction that uh, that's happening is that hydrogen is getting transformed into helium in the end. Um, and so, uh, as as you do so, of course, you consume the hydrogen. So you have more and more helium, less and less hydrogen. Uh, so at some point, what's going to happen is that uh, you won't have enough pressure inside because you will have the core of helium, and you won't have enough pressure around. The, around this helium core to fuse more to to make the fusion of more hydrogen. So at some point, the the thermo the, the thermonuclear reaction will stop. This is bad for us, right? Um, because uh, what basically there will be like a little subtlety of what's going to happen. We, it's going to happen in five billion years, something like that, four or five billion years, but. At some point, the reaction will stop. So we'll have a bit of like a micro collapse because nothing is going to counteract gr the gravity anymore. So it's back to collapsing. Mm. And you will actually have a, 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 little, uh, a little fight for life of the sun because, because of this collapse, the collapse is quite violent. So it will be enough for a while to reignite the, the reaction. 
So it's gonna, it's as if like you will have your reaction and then it's gonna stop just to say like a bit more one last time, you know, like, ah, uh, oh, wait, yeah. I have still some fight in me in a way. Yeah. And that's, that's what we call the red giant face. Uh, that's actually a star in the end of, it li of its life. It's doing a last one run of fusion. The sun is going to increase in size. The diameter is going to increase by 200 times 200. That's when it becomes a... A, a red giant. A red it's giant. Called, yeah, a red giant. This is... I think it's going to last a few more billion years. And that's, that's when Earth will be... Yeah, we, we will be... Devoured by the red it's, giant. It's, uh, Mercury and Venus will be devoured. Uh, Earth, I think at first it's it's a bit hard to tell because as you can imagine, this kind of fraction is going to perturbate the, the whole orbits of the planet. So maybe we're going to be centering, maybe we're going to crash to the sun. I think at some point we're going to crash into the sun. That's what's going to happen. But if you want to know, actually, uh, life on Earth, it probably has only uh, one billion years left, even before all, of, all this stuff happens. Why? Because um, and this stuff happens, you said how many billion years? Uh, basically, the the red giant phase, you can think five billion years. Five billion years away. Five so okay, years. then the life on Earth will end a long time before that happens. Yeah, so, yeah. exactly. Uh, if, and just even and uh, even just because of the sun, because uh, as it as it uh, as it starts to like um, to. Um, to run out of uh, hydrogen, it's as consuming, uh, because the, the equations are a bit complicated, but basically the sun is going to get, it's getting slightly bigger and slightly more luminous, setting like slightly more power as, 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 uh, as, as it goes on. This, this is because of the, of the, that's just the laws of physics, right? That, that tell you that. And what's going to happen is that by, in one billion year, the, the, the power that we will get from the sun will be increased by 10%. Basically, and you're gonna tell me that's not a big deal. The problem is like that's enough to so that the atmosphere won't be able to retain the evaporated water, in a way. So all the water that evaporates, it won't stay in the atmosphere to form clouds, to form rain, to go down later. It's gonna go into space. So we're gonna we're gonna we're going to be losing water at this point after one billion years. So it's going to be very. It will be the start. So that that's why the there's an endpoint to life on Earth is because sun is expanding. The, that's the one of the possibilities. I don't know which one is the first one. I don't know which one is going to happen first. There are many many reasons that. So uh, why then can we segue into that? Have, have a small digression. Why there's an endpoint to life on Earth? Yeah, the, I mean, I mean, I understand the resources are finite. Oh, and yeah. If you assume the current trajectory, will have more and more people. Oh yes, but this is, I mean, this is even, I think there is many, many threats for life on Earth on a much, uh, much, much smaller time scale, right? That uh, this astrophysics stuff, one billion year, it's, uh, it's uh, gigantic, right? How But long do we, how long has there been life on Earth? Just to put in, in the scale. Um, that's a good question. I think it's like uh I, I I'm not a biologist, right? So I'm not 100% sure, but it's it's at least hundreds of millions. Okay. Of years. So right? it seems like we're we're but about halfway. Yeah, in a way, we we are probably like a bit before half, and after that, it's going to start to be very nasty, yeah, because we will be losing water, and water is just essential. 
So yeah, better start to hurry up. Losing water because the because the evap- sun because is the atmo- heating up. Yeah, because the sun is gonna heating up, so it's gonna damage the atmosphere, and the atmosphere won't be able to retain the water that evaporates. So the water will, um, the water we see now as clouds will keep flowing into the universe. Yeah, in a way, yeah, because the, we will have like a, you know the ozone layer is yeah. going to be damaged, in a way, and um, it's all downhill from here, from there. Yeah. So and uh, even and so yeah, it's like this is one billion year. Like I think three or four billion years. Uh, it's the luminosity will be forty percent more, and uh, it's enough to evaporate water. Basically, it will be unlivable. Like the li- water in the ocean will literally evaporate. So if you have to point. put a bet on that, do you think before the time reaches, we'll find an alternative uh, living space I mean, for humans? At this point, the only alternative is like finding a new planet, right? Yeah. Finding a new home to colonize, and uh, whew, I don't know. Uh, I don't know how we will do that if we if we ever do. Nobody if will we... know, and um, I think a lot of people are working on that. A lot of smart people are working yeah. on that. Yeah, but you uh, see, like how how difficult it is to go to Mars, and uh, Mars yeah. is probably not the ideal candidate to start yeah. life. Because uh, the moment the sun dies, uh, Mars it's over also. So you know, it's like, just a temporary solution to yeah. postpone the problem. Yeah, that eventually, and it's not probably not postponing by much. So it seems like our destiny is fixed. Uh, it's if it's uh, if it is to continue, it will be outside of the solar system. That's for sure. So to another to another star, we need star. to find other star, another planet. I don't know. We can try. Uh, I think it's called Proxima Centauris. It's the um, it's the the closest star that we that we have for, from the solar system. The problem is it's four point two light years away from uh, the sun. So that means that if you're traveling at the speed of light, it's gonna take four years to get there on our whatever spaceship that we have. Mm. But does the time and speed functions in the same way as in, in the sun's uh, solar system more Do you think there's some cheat code we can apply and then all of a sudden we're if there, there is a cheat code no one has found it yet yeah. in a way we have never managed okay. to make anything travel faster than the speed of light yeah okay so this is for me like this is all speculative right like after i don't know like it would like literally break one of the most uh, important law of physics if we manage to do that so, I mean, honestly, if, if we manage to get something to fly in space at near the speed of light, that's, that's already incredible. We are, not, we are not even there. We are so far from there because there are many, many, many constraints. The amount of energy would be colossal. Got it. So it seems like we're, we're, this, uh, we're in this temporary phase of the universe that allowed allowed humans as a species to emerge life yeah. on earth to yeah. emerge yeah yeah it's and uh, the destiny is there and then we're just yeah it's like when you when you think of it the window is not that big right because in the very first in the first like few billion years of the solar system uh, the surface of earth it was perpetually like bombarded by uh, debris you know like asteroids or whatever floating uh, space uh, object mm-hmm. and uh, because at first it was not stabilized in a way so it was everywhere it was constantly crashing on earth so the um, the surface of the earth was literally in fusion 
it was literally melted, melting because of the impact of the asteroids. So that's, that's not a livable condition, right? So it's only after it's stabilized that we managed to like get the liquid, the liquid water and we have the little miracle of uh, bacteria that start to develop in the water into life as we know it. So the window is not that big, right? Maybe, I don't know, maybe the window was like, what, 3 billion years for, you know, between the first possibility for life and the end of the possibility for life. It's 3 like, billion yeah. years on the spectrum of yeah. how long from the from the beginning of because, Earth to because, the I mean, red Earth, giant. It can, the, this stuff is about the same lifespan as the sun and it's 10 billion years. 10 billion years. Right? So, so, so the, the window is about... Like, you have like a 3 billion year window. Yeah. So 3 billion out of 10 billion years Yeah. that we're here. That puts things into perspective. Yeah, yeah, it's right? all very temporary, right? When you when yeah. you look at that stuff, but and and it's not to mention how short our lifespan is. Yeah, for each person. So yeah, so in a way, that's that why you, you can also tell yourself that this is not your problem, right? <laughs> in yeah. a way, this is not going to be your problem. So yeah, might as well enjoy the ride. <laughs> yep. Um, I think we got carried away a little but i i feel like we've gotten a pretty good understanding of from the beginning to where we're going but yeah. i feel like you did have something yeah prepared to yeah share i mean more about in the middle me, i just me, cut yeah. you off then let me just yeah. fin finish that stuff real quick right i'm i'm going going to go very fast it's simply that yeah basically i i describe you know what happened to the sun and what happened to like the red giant phase the death of the sun it, it's not the same for all stars basically that's that's where i'm going because um, basically what happened in this red giant phase is that um, <coughs> because of the, the, the condition of like temperature and pressure, it's always the same, like inside the core, uh, you can actually launch sometimes some fusion of some other heavier elements. Basically, I said like, you know, hydrogen could become helium, but you can go a bit further down like the periodic table. You, like uh, you can, you can uh, after that, helium, you can make like fusion to create like, I don't know, like carbon, oxygen. Uh, it can go even as far as uh, neon, magnesium. Uh, yeah, this, this kind of stuff. And um, so, this, so this is basically how all the elements in, that we know on the periodic table up, up to uranium, right? Uh, that, that's how all of them are being created. In a way, it's like these stars, they're like the main, uh, the main factory to create like these elements. This is the case uh, until the element of iron, uh, that is like the more stable uh, element in the periodic table. What I mean by that is that in a normal star, right, even the biggest, the heaviest, the, the more like uh, productive one, they can go all the way to create iron. Right, so, but iron is like number 26 out of 94 elements, so there is still a whole lot of uh, elements that uh, that are everywhere now copper, zinc, gold, lead, platinum, all that stuff. Right, uh, it cannot be created by the stars in their fusion. So, how do we get how do we get these? Um, this is thanks to one of the most beautiful. And the cataclysmic event that you can uh, watch in the in the galaxy uh, that are called supernova. Uh, basically, this is what happens. Uh, this is the fate of the biggest stars, the one that burn the brightest and leave the shortest. And um, 
basically, uh, at some point, once you are finished burning the, uh, not burning, producing iron through thermonuclear fusion, at some point, you're out of uh, combustion and you're out of fuel, and you have this iron, this core of iron, a solid ball of iron in, in, the, in the center of your star, uh, and suddenly, phew, the energy turns off. The, no more power, right? No more power to expand. So you can imagine a cloud of iron, in a way, that is suddenly collapsing onto itself, right? Until it becomes like a ball uh, the size of half of Singapore, 20 kilometer diameter. And you, so it becomes like this and becomes tiny. So then everything that is the rest of the star, all the gas that is outside of the star, in a very like cartoonish manner, you know, when they walk over like a cliff and oh, nothing under my feet, they realize there is nothing. So it all starts collapsing onto the, onto the, it all starts collapsing very fast until it meets this like tiny ball of super, super, super compressed iron. And basically, the, um, this cloud is going to rebound, to smash against the, this, uh, this iron core and rebound. And this, this phenomena, it gives rise to the most cataclysmic explosion that you can think of. That's called the supernova. To give you an idea of the scale of a supernova, um, in the year 1054 on you know, planet Earth, Uh, there was an event that was documented by many, many uh, scientists, mostly in uh, Arabia, uh, like, you know, uh, yeah, like Arabia, uh, China, Japan, where people were actually doing science because, you know, Europe, mm -hmm. uh, people were busy, like murdering each other. So people that were paying attention, uh, they noticed, like, in a, like uh, we have many, many proofs in like written books. They all say at the same times, approximately, a second star is born. In the sky and my i think basically they're saying it's like as bright as the sun so literally a second sun appeared in the sky and for them and apparently it lasted 23 days i think 23 days uh for 23 days the guys documented like what's going on is it uh, you know like they were all oh this is bad domain this is good domain they saw a second sun and then so it was visible by day for 23 days And by night for 20 months, something like that. So there, were, there weren't <clears throat> a night on Earth because there are two suns. Oh, maybe. Yeah, probably. Probably, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was probably like full daylight, full like full, daylight. full sun for like 23 days. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure many people thought it was the end of the world, right? And what was that stuff? It was a supernova in our galaxy. <clears throat> basically that's what happened when it's so cataclysmic that yeah you see a supernova in a galaxy you will see like that stuff for like many for like for days it's going to be so bright the time it's like dispersed that's for days you're going to have like a second sun in your uh, in your uh, yeah in, in your in your uh, in your field of view and um yeah so are you saying that's another uh end point for For a star, for a star, yeah, other than that, the yeah, red that, giant, it's that, like, that could be an alternative. Yeah, yeah, it's like one of the possible fates. Basically, depending on their size, all stars they don't know the same fate. In a way, the small, the the sun, it's on a smaller scale, so it's less spectacular. After it's done uh, burning everything, it's just gonna a bit like slowly disperse all its element into the sky, uh, into the space. 
until uh, there will be only a bit of like a dead core remaining. That's what we call a white dwarf. And uh, it's gonna probably gonna going to stay there waiting for the end of the universe. Nothing too spectacular in a way. But when you have like very, very big stars, uh, they, they get, we get like this supernova kind of stuff. And where am I going with that? Is that the supernova, it's so violent. The energies that are like involved in there are so important that it's enough to actually force the fusion, the thermonuclear fusion of all the elements above iron, in a way. So everything, copper, uh, silver, I think it's after iron also, gold, lead, platinum, uranium, all these heavier elements, they are all, uh, they, they, they can only be created uh, from a supernova event. So it has many interesting consequences because on Earth, here on Earth, we have copper, we have gold, we have lead, right? Inside Earth. So what does it mean? It means that... Uh, it came from somewhere. Exactly. It came from another supernova. Exactly. Like the old, uh, uh, probably the materials that are like building Earth, it's probably the... Rem like, clearly, some of it comes from a supernova. So there was very likely a supernova before us, right? Uh, that blew up and uh, to create maybe the sun, the solar system, us. So in a way, we already, like, we are built from, like, the, the remnant of, like, a, of like a, a star that already blew up. So you're saying before Sun, there was a, there was another star that had a maybe, supernova event. Maybe, maybe. It's that like... That give the suns the elements that we have on Earth today. Uh, Did I mean, we get these elements from the sun? or No, exactly. We, we got them from somewhere else. Because the another... sun, the sun it, it, right now, it's only manufacturing helium. Yeah. Right? So that's not from the sun. That's from the supernova that was before us, in a way. And and uh, I I'm not sure if the sun is like kind of like the second generation star, in a way, because you know like you get this stuff blow up, and then it's all gas. So probably a lot of hydrogen also. Are you saying the Earth is older than the sun? Then in that no. case, uh, I mean depends. The Earth or as we know it, no, it's not older by the sun. It all was created about the same time. But Earth has elements that the sun is not producing. So that means it came from... Yes, but it's possible that the sun was created from the same supernova, I think, than Earth. Basically, we had like the supernova, everything blew up because, it, of course, it creates some of the elements, but still, it's quite rare, right? Most of it is still going to be hydrogen. So it's likely that like a lot of like the hydrogen went back, you know, it dispersed and then nothing to do. So it's just going to come back into another one and it's gonna go for another round, basically. And it's gonna create the sun. Like, it's possible, I think the sun it might be like a second generation star in a way, right? It's like the stars, they, they go, they blow up. And then with the star that is blown up, you can make another star mm -hmm. in a way, right? Stars are constantly being created. Right now, you can like watch the sky and you can find some places that are called like the nebulae uh, that are literally the, um, yeah, the birthplace of stars. There are huge clouds of gas that probably come from some sort of cataclysmic event in the past, or maybe they were just there and taking their time, I don't know. And then from this cloud of gas, you will get like some bright points, some bright points coming out that are like the stars that are being born in there. The star like the sun. The stars like the sun. And does every star has planets revolving around it? Not every, uh, probably not everyone. It's probably likely that a lot of them have. Yeah. And uh, what de determines the planets around the stars? Mm, I guess it's what... 
Um, yeah, now you're you're raising like a good question that I yeah that I I'm, I'm not sure of because it feels like you know planets they're made of like mostly you know uh, I mean the rocks and the stuff like that that compose them it's it's probably like some heavier elements. So it seems right? like they're so they came from the same event that created the stars. Yeah, I think I think maybe the very first stars that didn't have planets because uh, there was nothing to to build them. You know, like with because Earth, you know, we you have like iron, you have like uh, everything, all the rocks, all the minerals that are inside. It's all the it's all heavier elements. It's not hydrogen and helium, right? It's heavier elements. So maybe yeah, to to have planets, you need to have like supernovas before. Yeah, maybe there was no planet before the first supernova. That's something. Mm. Uh, that's something. That's that's my understanding of thing. Would would say that maybe I'm wrong. So, so let's say there was a supernova and it created the sun and the earth. Yeah. And the sun is slowly becoming a red giant. Yeah. And that's the in, in phase. But I think you're pointing out that the the fact that planets like Earth being devoured by sun might not be the only alternative ending. Yeah, yeah. And basically, and to come back to like the stardust thing, the whole thing that I was also trying to say is that uh, there was something before us, right? There was something before Earth, before the sun, like the elements that build us, they were like created in a, in a star blowing up before even, right? Like before the solar system, there was something else that blew up and yeah. that is now become like reforming, recombining again, this time into the solar system. And uh, we know what's going to happen next, right? Maybe we'll forever be like this. Uh, the sun will forever be this white dwarf. Or maybe at some point, it's going to collide into something. It's going to get swallowed by a black hole. It's going to... Uh, or two galaxies are going to like uh, collide. That's also a possibility. Like our galaxy is, uh, is, is actually moving towards another galaxy. So at some point, these two galaxies are going to merge and a lot of things is going to happen. And that will happen after the the end of sun, I or think, I think so, yeah. yeah. So let's say the after the end of sun, what could cause Earth to continue its life? I mean, Earth it will probably just be like a piece of calcinated rock and will be dispersed in a way. Because at at some point before the end of the sun, I think the Earth is going to like collapse into the sun. Okay. And from then, it's game over. It's gonna be like fuse, fused, you know, like uh, decomposed into elementary particles and. Psh, evaporate so it will never be a state where the earth retains the the shape as it is today after the end of sun no so no, the no. end of sun end means of the end of earth yeah as we know it today yeah, yeah. It's just we we become part of the sun yeah we get like and literally burnt into the sun and uh yeah and so then... it's that fate is inescapable for Unless you have like very big reactors to attach to the Earth to fly away, but uh, <laughs> yeah, very big reactor to to push us away from the sun to escape. I'm not sure if it's physically okay. possible, but <laughs> I mean, one so thing just is for tie sure back is that to the, if we yeah. if we don't move the Earth, that's what's going to happen, right? So the only possibility to preserve Earth is to get out of the way. Anyway. So then to tie back to the to the supernova you introduced just now. What what was the point there? What what were you trying to get to? Bring in the supernova. You're saying that there there was something happened before the sun. Yeah, the, that, yeah. Basically, I was yeah. It's a, it was a way to say that there was something before us, right? We are not yeah. 
it's like yeah we are not just like straight off the big bang in a way right it's like we are we are liter we have literally pieces of stars inside inside us right like everything that built us was created in a star before and the, you're saying the same thing could happen after and uh, yeah i'm saying that yeah it's like it's it's in a way it's all like kind of like cyclical in a way it's like after we are gone right like that stuff like even you can see not even on earth right you can like uh, like you can plant a tree wherever yeah. you are buried and your components are going to like reincarnation go, yeah you're, you're gonna you go somewhere else right and, and then even after even after earth is like burned into the sun in a way it's not the end the atoms are still going to be there and it's going to be dispersed maybe you will go into like uh, one uh, one uh, one uh, solar system and I will go in another and we'll part away there I don't know so that that might be the end of our friendship when i that would make um, the commute a bit uh, a bit harder yeah yeah or travel to different solar systems yeah well um on that depressing thought <laughs> we can uh, wrap up our first episode i think it's been a pleasure sure, to speak yeah. to you thomas and um, very interesting and i'm sure it will bring you back on at some point later yeah to share more about your actual uh expertise <laughs> yeah in quantum not my computing. side gig.